You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. I'm Tim Moore. I'm a travel writer with a penchant for doing enormous bike journeys, three of which have retraced the routes of the three Grand Tours. So I did French Revolutions 20 years ago. Then I did a book about the Giro called Geronimo, retracing the 1914 Giro d'Italia on a 1914 bike with wooden wheels. I've just recently, last year, come out a couple of weeks ago, done a book about the Vuelta called Welter Skelter, retracing the route of the 1941 Welter, which was won by a rather fascinating character called Julian Berendero. Well, let's start with that. When you mentioned that you've done the other two Grand Tours, that was the obvious one missing. But what led you to the, the story of Berendero in particular? I mean, obviously, it was it seemed like a, an obvious way. There was a trilogy. So you know, you've, done the, you've done the Giro and the Tour. So what about the Vuelta? And people were you know asking me about that over a period of some, some years, I have to say. Okay. But it was only in lockdown gets gets going and um i have too much time on my hands and i do all the stupid things that people tend to do in lockdown like sitting in the garden drinking loads of cider and doing various advanced bits of diy that i wasn't really competent to do and then i suppose it's because i've written quite a lot of books about cycling i tend to get given quite a lot of books about cycling but because i also feel like a bit of a fraud because i'm not really an actual cyclist and i you know, i don't really know what i'm doing so i always which I read a real book about actual cycling, I feel a bit guilty. But um, I, I started going through this pile, and there was a history of the Vuelta. Like you know, it's called Viva la Vuelta. Every just an account of every Vuelta there's ever been. Um, I thought, okay, well maybe I'll find something in there. I didn't get very far, page twenty-five actually, before I discovered Berendero's story. So he's he's riding in the Tour de France in 1936 when the Spanish Civil War breaks out in the middle of the race. Him and four other Spanish riders, uh, you know, you always kind of slightly cringe when sportsmen are asked to comment on politics, but clearly this was quite mm. a big deal, so they they get asked about it. And, I mean, in some ways, I don't, you know, it's been very difficult for me to find out the precise details of, of what Berendero in particular actually said, but it is agreed um, that he said some very critical things because they were all Republicans. They were very much anti-Francoists, these Spanish riders. So he, he, you know, gave some withering quotes about uh, about Franco and, and you know, in, defi- in defense of the Republic. By the time that tour ended, which he, he finished it as King of the Mountains, he was suddenly this, you know, he arrived as a complete nobody, had only ever really ridden a single stage race of any sort in his whole life, rocks up at the tour and wins the King of the Mountains. So he's, he's, a, he's a big deal. But by this stage, Franco's kind of vaguely got the got the Spanish Civil War won. So he's, he's stuck. So him and the other Spanish riders thinking, well, OK, uh, can't really go home now i suppose and here we are with we're in france where the big bucks are so let's just hang around in france so he stays in france for a you know goes in the 37 tour and the 38 tour and then 1939 uh, another war breaks out and he thinks oh well it's been a long time now i'll just i'll just you know i'll, I'll sneak home and it'll all be okay but it but it wasn't so um mm-hmm. he gets arrested at the border and slammed in a in a first of uh, four different concentration camps and Spends 18 months there, and he's in a camp down in Cadiz, in the in the you know Mediterranean coast. And one morning at roll call, this this guy says, um, "Oh, you get into my office." He's the the common commandant of the camp. 
And there and there, thinks like, oh, uh, this is probably the end here for me, because when that happens, you tend to not to be seen again. And instead, the guy shuts his office door and says, I'm sorry, are you, are you Julian Berendero, like the cycling guy? Oh, I mean, you probably don't remember me, but I was an amateur cyclist before the war. We raced against each other a couple of times. Look, look, here, have my breakfast. And give him this plate of, you know, kind of fried eggs and potato. He said, oh, it was the best, the, you know, tasted like heaven. It was the best meal of my life, because he hadn't really eaten a proper meal for 18 months. And this guy, you know, slowly puts in progress somehow, I'm not quite sure at what personal cost, gets him work around the camp, gets him some food, and then um, engineers his effective release. So he's, he's, you know, gets back to Madrid, gets a sort of, you know, some kind of job on trust in Madrid, being a chauffeur or something, and then is is quite miraculously invited to start the 1941 Vuelta, which is the first Vuelta of the Franco era, it was pitched as a you know the, a tour of the nation reborn, very much a propaganda exercise in the classic kind of totalitarian mode. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he wins it. <laughs> the question some people have is if if he was so political, why did he ride it? I've read that he was first and foremost a, a, a bike racer, and it kind of lends weight to what you were saying earlier about being unable to find specific comments. I guess when it when it came to it, and having just been released from the camp. This was an opportunity for him, at least, to uh, go back to what he was best at doing. By this stage, he's 29. You know, he's he's you know he feels uh, that his best days in the saddle are behind him. He thought he's you know he said I've, I've figured I'll probably never ride a bike again. So I guess he thinks, oh, well, what have I got to lose? And the race referee was this absolute total bastard called Manuel Serdan, who was um, obviously you know a Francoist. Uh, later on in the race, um, he, he developed this fixation that riders were drinking too much water and started snatching their bottles away, and half the field ends up retiring with dehydration and so on. But he said, uh, you know, gave an interview, said, well, yes, you know, this is... Berendero has... I mean, there was lots of euphemisms involved here. Berendero has completed his military service, and uh, let us now see what has resulted from his depuration, which is kind of, you know, his, his re-education, effectively, because that was the, the stated purpose of these camps, was to teach you the error of your ways. So it's kind of almost like they're, you know, these thinking I've got a, this is my chance, I guess, at, at wiping the slate clean, and maybe they'll they'll let me carry on racing if I prove that I'm kind of okay with entering this huge Francoist showcase and winning it. After crossing a tall dam, I was led away into a rearing pine forest, past the mossy concrete foundations of nationalist bunkers and gun emplacements. Beneath my wobbling wheels, the tarmac narrowed and broke up, soon devolving into loose rock and red earth. Even in the resiny shade, the heat was smothering. My front tyre bounced off a fur cone the size of a baby's head, and in a slow-mo battle for control I failed to yank a shoe out of a clip, keeling over into the dust. As I hauled myself up, a bloke about my own age hummed and crunched by on an electric mountain bike, giving me a wink that in a just world would have seen him bundled into a Roman catapult and propelled high over the treetops and down to the distant plain below. For the next hour, doleful and defeated, I half-pushed, half-dragged La Berendero up a steep, vague trail that was sometimes lost under drifts of pine needles. How galling to remember that Berendero, along with everything else, was also twice the national cyclocross champion. As a master of carry-up-hillo, he'd have been skipping daintily through this tilted forest, bike on his back and a tune on his lips. It's tempting, of course, when you, when you a superficial reading of of Berendero's story um, sort of paints him as a, a bit of a hero. But he was he was a complicated man, wasn't he? I mean, what 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 else did you find out about what kind of character he was? 
I think after after his experience in the prison camp, I mean, you know, if you read it before and after, you think, well, of course, you know, look at him. He's he's clearly a very angry man, very bitter man. Um, you know, he he basically runs on hatred, and he seems to. And you can say, okay, well, he's he's clearly got a gigantic grudge against not just the regime that is organising this race. Um, but against the other riders, because the other four riders have come back from France at the same time. Well, okay, a little bit before him, but uh, okay, and they got a, they got a, you know, a couple of months ban here and there and so on. But no one got banged up in a, in a camp for 18 months, so he hates them as well. And throughout his, the rest of his career, and I read his autobiography, which is, um, you know, published in 1949 when Franco's regime is at the height of its censorious power. So again, euphemisms are go-go in there. But he clearly is just a total loner. And I, did, I read up a, a quite a lot in the end about, you know, Spanish cycling of the era. And it was quite notorious for being, you know, a, like a kind of sack of cats when it came to trying to have any kind of team discipline, team tactics, team strategy, whatever else. They just wouldn't be doing it. They they would all just ride for themselves effectively. And Berendero happily <laughs> kind of embodied that that kind of theme. But uh I then, of course, discovered he'd, he'd, it wasn't just that he'd been like that before. When I delved back into his early career, he'd always hated everyone. <laughs> you know, there's some some guy in particular, Esquera, this, this you know, the big, big name at the time. He was in the same 36 tour as Berendera. And he absolutely despises this guy. And his autobiography is, is kind of full of like, you know, kind of, oh, well, I was unable to finish this race. But at least I had the satisfaction of Berendero, you know, throwing his bike into the fields in, this, in the signature of his cowardly withdrawal and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, he was, he, he was a very difficult man. And, you know, in the end he had, he had pretty much only one friend in cycling as far as I could tell. I mean, read, read all this stuff about him and read all the old interviews. Uh, the guy who, who kind of, um, it was, yeah, been a, you know, he was a brother of the guy who was the first ever King of the Mountains in the tour. This guy called, he was called Fermin Trueba. And right towards the end of his life, so they're both old men in their 70s and 80s, and um, El Mundo Deportivo, big Spanish sporting daily, get, gets uh, Berendero and this guy Treba and Bahamontes, you know, the first Spaniard to win the, the Tour de France, together in a room. And I think they must be thinking, oh, it'll be a nice old genial chat between these three guys. But instead, Berendero just rips into them both. <laughs> um, and it's really very uncomfortable to read. And then in his last interview that Berendero gave when he's, you know, he's 83 or something, he, he died about three weeks later. And uh, again, the reporter's obviously expecting like those sort of genial reminiscences of, a, of an old, old sporting legend. And he says, so, um, Julian, tell me, uh, you know, who would you like to thank for their, um, you know, their help in your career? And he says, do me a favor and print this in big letters. Nobody. Uh, so it was kind of interesting that I'd like tied my colours to his mask, and he was a uh, he was a total bastard. But you know, uh, in a, in a really in a, in a, because that's so not what I am. I actually found it quite uh, yeah, I kind of really warmed to him because he was so just so shamelessly. You know, you, you always think when you see sportsmen, particularly in a, in a sport like cycling, oh yes, well of course they they all talk about we and us and what was best for the team. And he just he just refused to even pay lip service to any of that stuff. This is about me. I'm trying to earn as much money as I can, and I couldn't give a crap of my teammates. Act, you know. In fact, actually, if they're going to take two potatoes away from me, I'm, I will push them into the gutter. <laughs> Got to kind of take your hat off to that in the end. And nevertheless, you did you did set off in his in his wheel marks and to ride that the route of the the forty one. Vuelta, um, start and finish in Madrid. Your own adventure here is, is interesting because you sort of sneaked out uh, of the UK in the brief window that opened in September, didn't you, last year, between COVID waves. I, I mean, tell me about that. You know, the idea obviously formed while you were at home and in lockdown itself. Was it sort of a, 
well, you, you wrote about this in The Guardian, about it being, um, you know, really craving the kind of adventure, the, the open road. I guess the, the appeal of that had been emphasised, had it, by the experience of lockdown. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like I say, I'm not really, in between going and doing these giant rides, I tend not to do very much cycling. And it was only because, you know, after the weather was completely glorious, as people, at least in, in I'm not sure what it was like in other countries, but in, in England, it was, you know, March, April, May, just cloudless skies, beautiful weather. So having done all the pointless DIY and, and gardening I could think of, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to go for a bike ride. And uh, I started going for quite a few bike rides. And it was, it was, it was just like a massive sigh of relief getting out of your front door and, and just getting out on there because everything was so empty as well. It was slightly surreal. Uh, you know, because I live very near Heathrow Airport, and normally that you know kind of ruins most most rides in terms of any kind of aesthetic sensibilities. And it was just completely quiet, just me and the birds, hardly anyone else out on the on the roads. And yeah, I just sort of thought, well, let's um, let's wouldn't this be great? Some, and, and there was, like you said, there was this bizarre window, and I, I just you know found out about Berendera's story and and kind of because I wanted to do it on one of his bikes, and I found out they you know, various. I could actually get a second hand because after he, he retired, like a lot of old pros, he opened a bike shop in Madrid and sold these kind of, you know, road bikes back in the 70s and 80s with his name all over them. So I want to get one of those. And I felt like I actually managed to get one of those in the end. Um, I thought, okay, but am I really going to be able to get out of the country and go and do this? Because <laughs> it was the longest bike race in Spanish history. It's like, you know, 4,400 kilometers. Um, but there was suddenly, suddenly, like the UK were letting me out. Spain was letting me in. I think it was about two days after they'd stopped the lockdown in Madrid, so I could get out of Madrid. But it was, it was. I mean, it was wonderful in terms of because it just felt so. I mean, you know, the Spain is a very big, empty country, and when you're in the towns, because you know, COVID was actually a much bigger deal in Spain even than it had been here, and people were taking it a lot more seriously. And when I left London, no one was really bothering with masks unless they're you know, forced to wear it in Spain. Everyone's wearing masks. They're really on message, like, you know, kind of every time you go near any establishment, they're going, caballero, caballero, and squirting you with, like, gel and so on. Um, but when you get out on the on the road, it's it's like you just left all that behind. It was just, it's just like bursting out of this claustrophobic kind of prison, really. And, and and you know, on the face of it, you know, ride, riding a bike all day in 44 degree heat when you're not very good at cycling seems like a really stupid, idiotic thing to do. But it actually felt like the most normal, reassuring thing in the world in the circumstances. Comparing it to France and uh, and, and Italy, and the, the the Italian adventure was particularly sort of arduous and and on the bike that you did it. But was this the most enjoyable one in a way for that reason? I guess it probably was because exactly, even though I, I'm really old i'm like 50 i was 56 when i did this ride um i don't i think when i did my, my the tour de france one i was i was still exactly part of my 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 kind of impetus for doing that was that i was about two months younger than the oldest ever winner of the tour de france so i thought okay you know i've, I've still got it here um and this time around obviously you know exactly i'm not handicapped by having a bike with wooden wheels that doesn't have any brakes really uh, i've got a okay it was a mid 70s road bike and it was very heavy and it was as i discovered afterwards by counting all the sprockets like oh right okay well i'm not very good at cycling but also this has actually got professional type gearing i just kind of somehow funneled all my um experience and and recognition of my own failings uh and and therefore kind of didn't really kind of absolutely destroy myself uh, intemperately every single day just every other day because i was trying to put in a put in a kind of tribute sprint at the end and it was ne- never never a good I- never a good idea 
Um, but yes, so it, it, in some ways, I, exactly. And the fact that I, I only nearly died kind of once, really, which is a lot fewer times than I managed to go down the Alps on that bike with gears uh, with no no kind of brakes. Was that because of the energy drink, or was that the three beers on an empty stomach? No, that's well. That was just a nightly, um, nightly kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, issue. issue Reward. With, exactly. I mean, well, you know, you, you just I kept, I kept failing to take on board the fact that Spaniards don't really eat anything in the evenings till ten o'clock. And when I'd like, you know, kind of wobble into the, to some little town at sort of six thirty, uh, with a gigantic calorific deficit, and then I would find out the hard way that I wasn't going to get anything to eat for two and a half hours. And then, you know, kept making the same mistake, have a couple of beers, and then we'd give you a little tiny, tiny sort of thimble of olives or a little you know, kind of cat saucer with three crisps on it. I would go, please, go, 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 more, more crisps, more olives, and just uh, keep ravening delirium at bay um, and, and failing. But no, it was actually when I was, because when I was reading all the 1941 newspaper reports, because I don't really, yeah, my Spanish is kind of non-existent, so I got them all off my computer at home, and there's this, Google have got this slightly insidious Google type thing called Google Lens, where if you point it at anything, any foreign language sign or whatever, it will vaguely translate it on your phone screen. So that was how I did all my translated all these 1941 sports reports. And the the Queen stage, which was up in the you know kind of Basque country, you know, said so my phone is like the stage, the stage of maximum hardness. So um, it was on the stage of maximum hardness that I really came to grief. Going up wasn't great, but it was um, coming down because it suddenly got, having been 44 degrees all day, it was very much not that at the top of this mountain. It was like frozen fog and I didn't have nearly enough clothes on. And uh, then going downhill, um, realised that, uh, you know, oh, I've got cramp in both my hands and I can't really press the brakes properly. Anyway, then no one was coming the other way, so I so I survived. Was that the stage two San Sebastian? I mean, did you did you ride the the stages, or or did you ride the route? Did you try and match the match the stages? Yeah, well, I like I said, I'm, I'm an old man, so I, you know it would have been great to have thought I'm going to do like a stage a day, but there, some of these stages are 300 plus kilometers. They're, they're long in those days. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they've, yeah. They've that's, reduced that's my distance. excuse, and yeah. I'm I'm sticking to it. But um, so. I, I, the first, also, the first day was just, as it, I guess it generally is in these things, I somehow convinced myself that I'm going to be okay this time and w- without having done much in the way of preparation, really. And then, of course, I, I'm not and I get awful cramp and I, I do about a quarter of the distance I'd expected to do. But, but, you know, cycling is quite forgiving like that, particularly given the route of this race. So there was one hideous mountain coming out of Madrid. Then it's just... I mean, stupidly hot, ridiculously hot, but not very hilly for really quite a quite a long time. So by the time I rock up to the to the serious vertical challenges, by default I'm vaguely fit, really, or at least as fit as I'm as I'm ever going to be. So it wasn't it wasn't too bad somehow going up these uh, big mountains. But I think also in those days the roads were so appalling that all the kind of preposterous climbs that we now associate with the welter, like you know Angleru and whatever else, all those kind of things. They didn't. They didn't. Didn't have any kind of road or anything up there mm. at all at that point. So they just couldn't do them. So I, I, I was gigantically relieved. All on the northern coast, looking at the uh, Picos de Europa, which are these, you know, gigantic mountains, knowing that I didn't actually have to go up any of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's only really there was about three, three or four sort of serious mountain days. Oh, well, actually, the last stage in itself did encompass the uh, the biggest mountain of the entire of the entire thing and i did actually do that in one day so i've been i built up to doing a stage every two days i thought that's about my level on the last day partly because actually things were closing in a bit the second wave of the pandemic was kind of 
started to make itself known and there were sort of police roadblocks and they're saying, where are you going? Oh, I'm just, I'm just cycling to Madrid. Like, really? Well, you know, and I could just, wouldn't it be a shame? Right at the end, somehow they, they basically turf me out and say, David, what on earth are you doing this irresponsible thing, you idiot, bugger off. So I felt somehow obliged with it. And also, I think I just wanted it. It was a romantic thing. I thought, I've got to live up to Berendero. Like, I've been in, in his shadow all the way through. At least I'm going to do one, the, the stage with the biggest mountain in it, and I'm going to do it all in a day. And I did do it all in a day. Spoiler alert. 225 kilometers is that right yeah which by mm. my standards is i think mm. i've only well i don't think i've obviously i know for an absolutely cast iron <laughs> fact i've only ever cycled further than that once in my in a day in my entire life and that was on a similar kind of situation actually it was the last stage of the the, the tour de france in 2000 but so, i was i was a young man then how long did it take you in total then the whole thing mm. i thought we were going to say the last stage no no it's really <laughs> embarrassing um, it took me pretty much six six weeks. So yeah, and I came back to London, and you know, that say there was this slightly weird kind of you know eat out to help out thing going. All the restaurants were open. It felt like oh well, this is all back to normal. Um, maybe coronavirus is all over now. But within a couple of weeks of that, it was it really isn't. And how on earth did I manage to go and, and fit this this four and a half thousand kilometer bike ride in in this little tiny window of opportunity? It's just that that is almost as miraculous as the fact that I that I you know finished the finish the whole race on, on the saddle you seize the the opportunity i mean you, you talk about you know arriving in hotels and they were they were kind of just just open and there was just about a kind of a, a tourist season but but not really it must have felt kind of ghostly did it almost kind of spooky the the emptiness yeah i mean particularly i think up the up the kind of costas up the mediterranean coast and all the resorts that are catering for you know fundamentally north european tourists who just were not there so lots of these great big glass blocks hotels um are all just like covered in dust and they got the the you know the front doors are all padlocked and um and the ones the hotels that were open i mean up on the on the on the north coast the atlantic coast i mean that is really fundamentally where over the years spaniards have gone so they were open the spaniards were still going on holiday but, you know, I, I was pretty much flying the, the lonely flag as an actual foreigner. Uh, and some of the places which had been geared up for foreigners and then and bravely stayed open, despite the fact they obviously hadn't had a single overnight guest for some weeks. Um, and you would see these these uh, very different emotions kind of on their face as I, as I you know, turned up in their reception, my sort of repulsive bike sweating heavily like a COVID-infected, you know, <laughs> foreign um and you know oh great you know there's there's a, there's a guest but no can we have a n nicer one next time <laughs> <laughs> and i mean in madrid at the end you had an important pilgrimage didn't you to the the barandero bike shop yeah like i say he opened up this bike shop in madrid and you know the bike i was riding which is, i think it was a 7 1974 bike had, had come out of this shop and i knew that you know barandero obviously isn't no longer with us but i knew that he'd passed the the, the shop on to his uh, one of his nephews um, he didn't have any children himself, but uh, and I'd kind of seen it looked as if it maybe it might have kind of closed down a bit because they didn't reply to any of my emails um, and so on. But I, uh, when I looked at it on on Google Street View, uh, there it is. It's still like there. There's an actual bike shop with uh, some bikes in the window, and then I go to this shop on the last day with like you know tears of of uh, kind of import streaming down my cheeks and and there's no there is no shop it's literally i had to spend about five minutes like you know running my fingers over the stone outside this building to mm -hmm. feel the imprint of what had been the old berendero motto um embedded into the front wall so that was that was that was very that was very poignant because i 
I also felt terrible, really. So I, I you know, I, I couldn't believe that no one had really heard of Berendero. I mean, fair enough in this country, but in Spain, he was such a big deal. Uh, I know it was a long time ago, but not, you know, not even kind of vintage bike collectors that I would occasionally meet in bike shops or whatever, you know, and I'd, I'd say, oh, uh, uh, Berendero, and they, you know, their faces just sort of, you know, blank, and then and I point at the name on the frame because I, I think it was, he was clearly a little bit of an egomaniac as well, but actually quite a lot. Um, again, which I respect, because, you know, frankly, if you're going to be a, a kind of world-class sportsman, you have to be. You might as well be honest about it. So he had ele- his name 11 times on this bike, which is pretty good going. <laughs> because I'm, you know, a bit clumsy and a bit tired, and I had to carry the bike up lots of staircases and then cram it into these tiny little guest house lifts, picking it up by the frame, I, it, all, it all kind of wore off in my hands, really. And I, I just felt like, this guy's already been vaguely airbrushed out of history and I'm finishing the job off. And that airbrushing, because even though he stood against or, or spoke out against Franco, he was sort of seen as representative of a very troubling, troubled era in, in Spanish history. I think very much so. That's I, I came to conclude that. And I I don't know, I, I do. I feel slightly ashamed at how little I really knew about the Spanish Civil War and particularly how little I knew, knew about kind of the appalling aftermath when... You know, exactly. A million people are put in concentration camps, and you know, well, I think more. I think something like half a million people died in the Spanish Civil War. More than half of them were weren't like killed in battle. They were. It was you know extrajudicial killings, as they call them. They were just taken away by a death squad and like you know shot and pushed down a well or heaped into a mass grave, and and most people will never be found again. And I guess when you think of it in those terms, perhaps it's not surprising that the the embedded trauma particularly in a society like spain that's very much you know your grandparents and their parents are very much a living part of your of your kind of experience so the fact that your grandparents were doing these absolutely appalling things to each other means you don't really want to 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 remember them and there is it's called the pacto del olvido the pact of forgetting let's not mention this stuff and in the end, I thought, well, that is that is part of the reason. So whenever I tried to talk about the Civil War, even young people like in their 20s and 30s would just kind of phase out and, you know, no, they wouldn't overtly change the subject, but they'd just, you know, gaze over my head until I started talking about something else. And it was the same with Berendero, and I think there must have been an overlap, you know, because he, he embodied this really difficult, painful time in their country's history that they really have not recovered from. Uh, let's Let's just not talk about this guy. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. My name is Justin McQuarrie. I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm 25 years old. I've had type 1 diabetes since I was two years old, um, so I, I don't really know life without diabetes. Once I knew how to manage it, and like, it's definitely a trial and error, a lot of trial and error of figuring out what works and what doesn't with sport. Um, but I never saw it be a hindrance for me. The only the only thing that was holding me back was how fast I could spin my legs and how fast I could push on the pedals. Um, but that that also comes directly in with making sure you're on top of managing uh, diabetes as well. If you fail at one, you're probably not going to do so well on the other. So you got to make sure you're on top of your game there. Yeah, I was on the development team for four years and then started racing for some uh, U.S. teams. I was kind of in a, a middle ground where I wasn't ready to make the jump up to the pro team and uh, had other ambitions. I have been racing for pro teams in the U.S. for the last three years now. Um, and we still have been doing a lot of the big U.S. races and some of the other 
other UCI events in North America, and we actually did a little stint in Italy a few years ago. But unfortunately, there's just not that much racing in the U.S. Um, just as a as a whole right now, um, and uh, both the team of team Nova Nordisk development and professional team have a very Europe heavy. Uh, calendar where, where there's a lot of racing, a lot of higher, high quality racing. The more I learned about Berendero, the trickier it became to imagine him as a kindred spirit. In all honesty, he slightly scared me. This was a man who once whipped a Spanish police motorcyclist with an inner tube for veering across his path on a finishing straight, and reduced a Madrid grandstand to shocked silence by repeatedly dashing his winner's bouquet into the ground when a group of children came up to ask for a few carnations. In a sport that so often depends on cooperation, JB was a ruthless, hard-boiled loner. I never had any mentor or trainer, he said in one of his last interviews. I forged myself and always rode for myself. Berendero was a recidivist wheel-sucker, in the appealing native term a chupa and an entirely unapologetic one. In pursuits or escapes I took no turns at the front, he merrily confesses, even though I knew this would count against my reputation. Related altercations throughout the 1936 Tour de France ensured that Berendero would be cold-shouldered by every rider who stood beside him on the Paris podium. Here was a debutant with absolutely no respect for the Tour's patrons, or for its code of honour. You can only admire the great big balls of the man. I suggest we all take a moment to do so right now. You know, humour is never far away in your writing. Um, you're a very funny writer, but did that make it, it was it more difficult to mine the, the comedy out, out of this journey? Although although the comedy is often at your own expense, and I guess that was a, a, an endless source of material for you, was it? That's right, yeah. Like even uh, as as all about the world is is kind of coping bravely. I'm just a sort of pathetic, blubbering idiot. So that's fine. That's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, yes, it was. It was obviously quite a challenge because coronavirus pandemic not funny. Spanish Civil War not funny. Spending eighteen months in a concentration camp really not funny at all. The raw ingredients were um, unhelpful <laughs> in that regard. But uh, I suppose maybe yeah. I mean. It was it was better for me. It was it was, a, it was such a great story, and I think also uh, there's there's always comes a point when I'm sit down and try and write these books up, and I'm thinking, have I this time? I really have said all there is to say about you know unfit middle aged man goes up big hill on inappropriate bike. Well, when I ever I had that suspicion as I was writing it up, there was all this other material, and which is you know I did actually have to struggle quite hard not to just make it all about the uh, the civil war and the aftermath and, and Berendero. It sometimes felt like I was, I don't know, well, you'll have to be the judge when, when people read the book, whether or not I successfully married these very incompatible strands together. What's your process for that? I mean, do you, are you taking a lot of notes as you go and spending evenings maybe writing passages or what? what's your writing process? Back in the day, before such technology existed, I, I would just have a little notebook in my back pocket and that was... I would say definitely a better because you you know you're not just remembering things as as you go, but also you're you're vaguely putting it into some you know you're writing things down. Anyway, as I got older and and uh, slower, I thought I just can't be having with this. It's just taking ages. So I now just have a have a you know um, a phone in my back pocket of my jersey, and I get out and I I kind of um, mumble into it. And I came home with I think it was. 2750 something voice recordings 
Uh, a lot of which, of course, I can't really understand what the hell I'm talking about because I'm at the top of a mountain, which I've just like, vomited my way up. And it's just like, what, what, what's that? what am I saying? <laughs> when you sit down and start transcribing these things, by the time you finish, you think like, I never want to hear another word that man has to say again. And now, But now I've got to somehow take his words and put them into a you know, first-person book form. So it's, uh, yeah, the transcribing thing is a bit of an ordeal. But it does, I mean, it, what the advantage is that it's like, it really puts you back in the moment. God, yeah, I was really knackered or like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, uh, I really did hurt myself then. And the, oh, I really am seriously lost. I did, get, I did manage to actually happens about technology having improved. And in some ways, when you go off on these things and, and you, to a little to tiny manageable degree, want things to go a bit wrong. And of course, when you've got sat navs and phones and so on, and the, the possibilities for going, things going badly wrong are massively diminished. But somehow I did actually manage to get totally lost in a, in a desert, which was, um, which was alarming because... Well, I'm just a, I'm just an idiot, really. So I um I had this. It was called. I'm going to get in trouble. It's called Commute. Anyway, I mean Commute was this this sort of like bike friendly navigation app, and it did. It, I'm not can't really criticise the, the 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 app at all. But it was. I only noticed after I was about two thirds way around the route. Why do we? I keep getting sent off these like you know goat, literal goat trails with actual goats on them, and sometimes not even that, and just not even the road. Where the hell am I? I'm in the middle of this, you know, scrubby nowheresville. Um, heaving my bike literally on this one occasion down a sort of ravine and I, I had it set to um hiking there were like four <laughs> modes there was like hiking like you know kind of uh you know mountain biking and whatever and and then uh, road road touring so well i clicked a re- it redrafted all of my all my painstakingly inputted oh. routes that i spent ages doing back at home into a way that actually let me cycle on a road <laughs> oh no what a burk I, I mean you say you say you're not a cyclist but you must you must have come home from that and other trips pretty fit are, are you are you not are you what do you do with that fitness are you not tempted to sort of keep it keep it maintained not as tempted as, as i should be and i tend i just tend to watch it wither on the bow in a really unsightly saggy old man fashion so i did I always come back having lost i don't know seven or eight kilos um and always with great intensity because clearly i mean after the you know two or three days you're you're you know you're leaping out of bed with twitchy legs and you're you know your body's mm. saying like what's going on why aren't you cycling for like nine hours and maybe if I lived somewhere slightly more, I mean, it's kind of pathetic. I'm just making a terrible excuse here. But, you know, I live in London. I've got the North Circular Road, which I look out of the window as I speak to you. It's just traffic roaring past. It's just not, cycling in London is not really a barrel of laughs. And particularly if you want to go and cycle, do, do a, a proper bike ride, it's just a bit of an undertaking. And so because I'm a lazy gear, I just don't, I don't do it. I mean, my, the other rationale I have for, for this um is that it keeps me fresh when I go on to another bike adventure in like two years' time, whatever. I will, it'll be like falling in love all over again with the wonderful sport of, uh, of insanely long distance cycle touring by unfit people. I guess that's part of the part of the story, isn't it? In a way, shedding those those skins that you've uh, added. I, w- I wondered if if <laughs> if to try and channel Berendero on your trip, you were uh, really unpleasant and rude to hotel staff. Did you try and ape him in that way? I really should have died. I was quite rude to a to a few kind of um, cyclists who who caught me up in a quite a Berendero way. Um, I mean, I would. It, the, the cycling is is really, first let me say, like is massive in Spain. I hadn't really quite realised how like just club cycling, local cyclists, way more than any other country I've seen, uh, with the possible exception of Italy, certainly way more than France. Uh, every day in the middle of nowhere, you come across some like you know, and and I did actually occasionally manage to latch onto the back and got a free ride, which is very exciting for me because I'm not really used to riding in groups of people. 
Um, but more often they would they would uh, catch me up from behind. And yeah, there was one time it actually was on the uh, the stage of maximum hardness actually. <laughs> the, up in the um uh, and these two guys kind of surreptitiously approach me behind and and this, because they okay the thing is you do go slightly mad when you're doing these very solitary endeavors and you know you push yourself beyond your modest physical abilities and you haven't eaten enough food and you start to feel a bit loud and i and, I, and also because i am making a lot of voice recordings so you, maybe you get used to the idea that just you know talking quite loudly to yourself is is perfectly okay uh, sadly, because singing, singing very loudly and making up puerile uh, reworkings of childhood TV jingles stuff probably is is less okay. And anyway, these these guys, they in particular, they they have obviously been behind me for some time, listening to my deranged stream of consciousness as I'm sort of uh, like spouting out crap on the on the, in front of them, and they started to to um, laugh at me. <laughs> I did actually. It was it was quite impressive. And I'm sorry, it's not very nice, but I, I stood up and and somehow was managed to conjure up the most gigantic fart. <laughs> and and I pedalled off as fast as I, as I could, which is obviously not very fast. When I looked around, they they weren't there, so I don't know whether they just got bored or were actively repulsed. Um, but that's that. That's not a very good way of saying that I emulated Berendera by doing that. But that was as close I, as I came. He'd have been he'd have been <laughs> proud. Um, so I mean, you've done you've done you've done the three grand tours. What what next? Well, um, I'm trying to sort of make me forget that I even had this idea. But some time ago, I thought. Uh, I think I was looking for I was looking for sort of interesting old bikes for sale because I think that's part of it. Also, what, what gets me into these stories is having some kind of bike which resonates with a particular period. And I, and I was looking at old communist Chairman Mao era bikes, and they did this bike called the Long March, which is obviously like a load of old crap. This bike, but uh, the fact is, I thought, well, wouldn't it be quite interesting to retrace the route of Chairman Mao's Long March on a Long March bike? But it's a really, really, really long march. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, inaptly named. I think it's even longer than the 1941 Vuelta a España, and it's in China. And I'm just thinking, is that is that just too much in in every possible respect? Not speaking any word of the language, middle of nowhere, forever. But that that was something that I thought might be interesting. I think once you've <laughs> well, once an idea has kind of buried itself, it's probably difficult to get it extracted again and this i really wish that wasn't the case but you're right it is unremember it well good luck with that (laughs) (laughs) you've been listening to an episode of kilometer zero supported by super sapiens thanks to tim moore and his new book vuelta skelter is available now in all good bookshops this episode was produced by john mooney